Hello, friends. Registration is now open for next year's Exiles in Babylon conference, and I cannot wait for this conference. Here's a few topics that we're going to wrestle with. The future of the church, disability in the church, multi-ethnic perspectives on American Christianity, and a conversational debate on the problem of evil and suffering. We have Eugene Cho, Elise Fitzpatrick, Matt Chandler, Michelle Sanchez, Justin Gibney, Devin Stolomar, Hardwick, the list goes on and on. Joey Dodson's going to be there. Um, Greg Boyd and Clay Jones, are, they're going to be engaging in this conversational debate on the problem of evil and suffering. And of course, we have to have Ellie Bonilla and Street Hymns back by popular demand. And Tanika Wyatt and Evan Wickham will be leading our multi-ethnic worship again. We're also adding a pre-conference this year. So we're going to do a, um, an in-depth scholarly conversation on the question of women in ministry, featuring two scholars on each side of the issue. So uh, Drs. Gary Bashirs and Sidney Park are on the complementarian side, and Drs. Cynthia Long-Westfall and Philip Payne on the egalitarian side. So March 23rd to 25th, 2023, here in Boise, Idaho. We sold out last year and we'll probably sell out this year again. Uh, so if you want to come, if you want to come live, then I would register sooner than later. And you can always attend virtually if you can't make it out to Boise in person. So all the info is at theologyintheraw.com. That's theologyintheraw.com. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. My guest today is uh, Dr. Michelle Lee Barnwall, and uh, Michelle is a scholar, a writer, a professor. She has, listen to this rap sheet here, she has a, a, a BA from Harvard University, an MS from Pensacola Christian College, an MA from Talbot School of Theology, another MA from University of Notre Dame, and a PhD from University of Notre Dame. And her dissertation was published in the very prestigious uh, Society of New Testament monograph series, I believe it's called, which is um, a, the hardest place to get your monograph published in. Her dissertation was on Paul, the Stoics, and the Body of Christ. She's also the author of Neither Complementarian Nor Egalitarian Reframing the Gender Debate, which is the topic of our conversation today. Uh, Michelle does a fantastic job kind of um, critiquing, pushing back on, reframing uh, the debate over women in so-called ministry or leadership or however you want to frame it. So I read her book last summer. It's absolutely outstanding. Everybody needs to read her book. And that's why I'm excited to talk to Michelle. So please welcome to the show for the first time, the one and only Dr. Michelle Lee Barnett. So excited to talk to you, Michelle, because your book, uh, Neither Complementarian Nor Egalitarian, A Kingdom Corrective to the Evangelical Gender Debate, is an absolutely outstanding book. I read it last summer in my, um, oh, you probably can't even see, I've got a, a stack of all my <laughs> women in ministry books, and um, yours is uh, in, in the midst of that stack. But uh, thank you so much for being on the show, Michelle. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So that, I mean, the, the, the title is pretty provocative, uh, neither complementarian nor egalitarian. Can you unpack what you mean by that? I mean, are you really <laughs> neither one or the other? Or what, what, not you personally, but like, give us a summary of what the book's all about, how somebody could be neither complementarian nor egalitarian. Yeah, well, the basic idea of the book is I question the positions. Um, I have a lot of respect uh, for both of them. I think they make great arguments. I appreciate the people on both sides of the debate. But uh, kind of throughout, I've had some questions about whether each, any of the two sides can sort of fully capture what I think Scripture is trying to say about uh, men and women um, in, in Scripture. And so the title is a bit of a play on uh, Galatians 3.28, right? Oh. <laughs> and in terms of the neither male nor female, you know, in that. And actually, I guess maybe here's like the secret thing. There's a little bit of a double meaning to it. You know, in that regard, because if you take it literally, I'm saying that there is neither complementarian nor egalitarian. Is there a third way or so, you know, in this? I mean, really in the book, what I'm trying to do is give a different framework, give, you know, alternative positions, you know, and maybe a different way of looking at it. But I'd also say that um, in the Galatians 3.28 context, even though Paul says, you know, like, neither, neither male nor female, neither Jew nor Greek, there is a sense in which it can't continue, because the way Galatians 3.28 goes on, right, he says, you are all one in Christ. So in there's a sense is, you know, I, I try to tell people, I'm not necessarily trying to convert people. You know, I don't want complementarians to be egalitarians or egalitarians to be complementarians, you know, in that regard. What I want is for each person, each side, maybe to kind of question, you know, their position, you know, in that regard. And sometimes I say, ultimately, I want complementarians to be better complementarians. Hmm. And I want egalitarians to be better egalitarians. 
Mm-hmm. Um, because I feel like sometimes perspective is maybe a bit narrow and there are more things that we can do to, you know, broaden it in that regard. So really what I'm trying to do is kind of, you know, reframe things. Maybe in the end, we will say it's either complementarian or egalitarian, but mostly right now I'm trying to, to ask questions. Can you, thank you. And that they came out really well in the book. And um, if I remember correctly, it's almost like, I mean, after you kind of set up the book, it seems like some of the, like each chapter kind of alternated between like kind of critiquing some parts of the, an egalitarian argument mm-hmm. and then the next chapter kind of critiquing some parts of, of a complementarian argument. Is, is that kind of how it's set up more, more or less, or did I read into it too much? Yes. Yeah. You very, you read it, you read it well. And that um, I kind of start out with a little bit of American history. I try to kind of think yeah. about like, where did um, sort of like, where did these categories come from? You know, where did these concerns come from? Because a big part of the book is saying that, the debate seems to be centered around these questions of authority and equality. Yeah. You know, do men have a particular authority or is authority shared? Is there a certain type of equality instead? I definitely do alternate in terms of that. I have two chapters in terms of ministry and then two chapters in terms of marriage. I, I want to, um, there's I've several parts of the book I would love for you to kind of expand on, but um, tell us really quick about your journey. Like, did you grow up in a complementarian or egalitarian context? And were you ever like, committed to one side or the other? or how, What kind of led led to you writing this book? Well, I, w- I would say that um, in some ways, just kind of growing up, um, I had maybe a little bit of a mixed background. I mean, I grew up in a pretty traditional family where my father was a breadwinner and he, in a sense, had sort of the authority in the household. My sister and I were encouraged to pretty much do everything our brothers did, you know, when it came to vocation and education. And so there was there really wasn't a sense in terms of, you know, women are like this and, you know, our brothers are like this. Um, I have to say that when I first became um, an evangelical and I heard about the debate, I was a little bit kind of befuddled by it. As far as my own journey, um, I would say maybe a big point for me in that is as I began to, it was more like when I was a seminary student. And I, as I looked at you know the arguments for both sides and I approached it generally the way that you know we, we normally do. Here's the complementarian arguments and here are the egalitarian arguments. And, you know, which one do I prefer? You know, which one do I think is is better? Hmm. And so I kind of I put it in that way. But even then, I think there was this kind of nagging sense in me that I would I would think, you know, that's not the best argument or this is the good argument or, you know, this this side makes this point And that's really good. But I'm not sure about this point. So I think I just always had a little bit of a dissatisfaction, you know, with that. And then I think that another, um, well, I guess one turning point came to me too, is when I was a graduate student and I was, my dissertation was on the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 12. And so, of course, naturally, as I'm studying this, I'm, you know, deep into the primary source material and antiquity in terms of how the body metaphor is used. And I'm going to come across some references to the head. And... Hmm. You know, it was in that when I, because, you know, in terms of Ephesians 5, a big question in the debate is, you know, is this a universal principle um, or is this, you know, sort of cultural in that regard? And as I began to look into the primary source material, it just kind of dawned on me. And I wasn't even directly looking at this in regards to the debate. It's for my dissertation. Hmm. I began to think, well, well, it is cultural. I mean, the head metaphor is very in that regard. But the point doesn't seem to be as much whether it's cultural, but how it's being used. Hmm. And that's when I began to see that, wow, Paul is using a metaphor in a very cultural way. But what he does is he basically turns it on its head. And that's the reason why that was so impactful for me is it began to make me realize I have all these assumptions about how I approach the debate. I have all these assumptions about what leadership is. I have all these assumptions Mm -hmm. about um, you know, interpreting the text, and maybe not all of my assumptions are correct. Mm-hmm. So I would kind of say those are kind of the uh, the, the turning yeah. points for me. While we're on it, the uh, you, you just mentioned Ephesians five, and and obviously the one of the key terms there is kephale, the the Greek word translated head, and um, I, that was one of the more fascinating parts of your book. How you well, you even used the phrase, and it's the title of your article, turning kephale on its head, which is a brilliant title. Um, can you can you unpack that a little bit for us? Like, what? How how do you understand what Paul's doing there? And then obviously that 
goes into what does kefale mean? Is it authority? Is it source? Are those the wrong questions to even mm-hmm. ask? Well, as you know, so the, the basic contours of the debate is what does head mean? When Paul talks about in Ephesians 5 that the husband is the head of the wife, does it mean authority, complementarian version? Does it mean source or preeminence in terms of the egalitarian you know, argument? And so basically what I did is what I came basically came across in my dissertation research is when you look at how the idea of headship, um, the idea of the head is used in the ancient writers, mainly a lot of the ancient political writers, that it is used metaphorically and it used in terms of the position of the body. And so basically the way they would use it is they'd say like, well, you know, if, if you look at the position of the body, if the head is on top, it must be the most important part because it's on top. That's why the feet are lowly because they are on the bottom. And so the head metaphor is very useful to be used in political arguments if you're talking about say, the emperor or a general, you know, in that regard. But what's interesting about that, so I felt like in terms of the ancient literature, that's a pretty common use of the metaphor. So you could just sort of say, oh, well, that must mean that the husband is head of the wife, he's in charge, and, you know, and he gets all of these things. But what became to me so interesting, you know, in terms of the metaphor, is that in the ancient use, there are certain things that go along with the metaphor. Um, If you are the head, you have privileges. Um, you know, you get these best basic privileges and you are the one who is to be loved because, you know, you're the most important part. When you look at how uh, Paul uses the metaphor, he actually does the very opposite in that regard. When he talks about the husband being the head, the head doesn't get the privileges. The head actually is the one who is supposed to sacrifice. And the head isn't the one that is supposed to receive love. The head is the one who is supposed to give love. Mm. So in other words, it's a kingdom reversal, you know, in in this regard. It's kind of a paradox. And the other reason why this is important is because it really goes against the structures of you're supposed to um, uh, work according to your station. So if you're the head and you're supposed to have all these privileges and you do the opposite, it's, well, on the one hand, it would be a shameful thing to do. But the other thing is, according to antiquity, it would actually be suicidal for the body. Um, there are these um, quotes in, in antiquity will say something. Well, of course, um, if the if the body's in danger, you have to do everything to protect the head, because if the head dies, you know, the whole body is going to die because the head is the most important part. So when Paul says for the husband as the head to sacrifice himself, he's actually doing something that would sound nonsensical, hmm. um, uh, suicidal in that regard, because, you know, in that regard, if the head dies, the whole body dies. But in the kingdom, just like Jesus died so we could have life. Paul says the hus- the head dying in this regard is what brings about the unity in Ephesians. Mm-hmm. Um, because Ephesians 5, um, there's so much talk about, you know, women submitting and the husband being the head that what is not always seen is Paul says the purpose of all of this is to fulfill Genesis for the two become one mm-hmm. in that mm-hmm. regard. Yeah. So I sort of see this really gospel outline, you know, in terms of this, which is supposed to be nonsensical, incomprehensible to the right. world. So w- would you, if I'm hearing you correctly, and please, please if I'm not hearing you correctly, let me know. Um, yeah. But the, the, yes, kephale head does convey some idea of authority, but that the nature of authority just completely redefined and turned on its head almost. So, um, or are you, are you saying that we shouldn't even use the concept of authority there as, as a translation or understanding well well the idea is that um how it's used and then sort of like sort of gospel redefinition you know in this regard and to me it it makes me think about matthew 20 where jesus sort of says well you know here's you know the gentiles the rulers lorded over you in this regard but whoever wants to be first must be the slave or the servant you know in this regard so it's not that you know say it's not that everything is kind of erased but what what paul seems to be doing is but we have to kind of ask what happens in that regard I mean, what does, you know, if, if the husband is ahead in this regard, but he's the, the servant, mm-hmm. you know, in, in this regard, I mean, I guess it does ask the question, well, what does that mean in terms of, you okay. know, authority? It's, it's, a, it's a play on that. So so tr- trying to redefine it or trying to define Kefale as source and not authority, you, would you say that's just kind of a bit mis, misguided or, or isn't, would you say that that translation is a legitimate way to understand the source material that Paul's reflecting on or? Um... Well, I think in terms of, I, I say personally, source to me is is a bit vague, <laughs> you yeah. know, like source of what, you know, you know, in, in that regard. So 
to me, that, that's a little bit more difficult one. Um, if you were to say something like preeminent, I would say yes. You know what I mean? These are all aspects. You know, I would say in terms of the way the metaphor is used, things like authority, leadership, preeminence, um, you know, which kind of encompasses both the complementarian and egalitarian definitions are kind of both in there. But what becomes important is not simply saying we know what head, we know what head is, mm -hmm. you know, and therefore we're going to take how it was understood in antiquity, you mm -hmm. know, and sort of apply this. The point is, what is the gospel redefinition, yeah. you know, in, in this regard? How does Jesus, in a sense, turn it upside down to where it becomes um, paradoxical? Because I think what happens is often when we're talking about, you know, these different terms, we talk about it's like a gospel modification, but it's more than that. It's a gospel complete redefinition of it. Which, when you when you look at the household code in Ephesians five and compare it to other Greco-Roman household codes, it's like you have some semblance of similarity. You have the shell that's still there, but it just reads mm -hmm. so differently than Aristotle. That's like, mm -hmm. wives submit to your husbands because the woman is inferior and she's kind of half right. of a man or whatever. And like, at least she's a little better than a slave. That's not even a human, you know, like he just has all these, I mean, typical, uh, hierarchical ways of viewing humanity. And Paul just obliterates that. Um, and, or even like, you know, if I remember correctly, like women were never directly addressed in the household codes. It was man, men keep your women in submission. It was like you, right. You dominate, you know, keep them in submission. Mm -hmm. Whereas here, the woman is given agency and dignity by being addressed to submit to your husband's. Uh, is, is, that, is, is that correct? It's been a while since I looked at the source material. but Yeah, and, and some of it, too. It, it, that's helpful for me as you kind of reiterate that. Um, I think one of the things we have to keep in mind is that when Paul is talking to a culture, he's going to be talking in terms that they are familiar with right. you know, in, in this regard. And, and so that's why it becomes so really important. It's sort of not just does he use these terms, how does he use these terms? You know right. what I mean? And yeah. so much of what Paul does is the gospel is a critique of society, you know, in this. It's a critique of that, you know, the societies that he's in. And one of the big aspects of the critique is, of course, is, of course, the cross of Christ. Right. You know what I mean? What the world thinks is going to be uh, weakness is actually God's power. We see this in First Corinthians. What it thinks is, is uh, foolishness is actually God's wisdom. So, again, he's using their terms. And, and redefining that, you know, sort of in a sense, turning them inside out, turning them upside down um, because of the values of the world in God's economy, this is the kingdom. Which is, I mean, the, the Matthew 20 and, and Luke, um, is it Luke 20 as well? Uh, that, that passage you cited earlier okay. about mm -hmm. the first shall be last mm -hmm. and, you know, the Gentiles lorded over them, but not so among you. I mean, that, that theme of reversal, and we'll get to the whole, like what leadership even is and how that theme is radically reversed uh, in a second. Your, your chapter on that's pretty brilliant. I want, I want to go back to the uh, one of your beginning chapters where you, oh, actually, no, no, before we go there, I was, the, the whole like feminist kind of context of where this debate kind of ha has not started from, but kind of been influenced by, if you will. One more thing on Ephesians 5, the, the idea that Ephesians 5 is teaching mutual submission. So 521, submit to one another in love, wives to your husbands. Do you find mm -hmm. that to be, a helpful lens to say Ephesians 5 is actually teaching mutual submission or how would you uh, respond to that argument? Yeah, well, I think definitely you have to take a look at um, uh, 520 in terms of mutual submission. And I think maybe that is something I'm thinking, maybe it's kind of Paul's signal. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of like, hey, everyone, you know, this is going to be seen in terms of this, mm -hmm. you know, in, in terms of, of this context. Uh, one of the things I think is, is you know, Paul does quite a bit of this, you know, in his letters. He'll kind of say something and then he kind of qualifies it, you know, in this regard. So I definitely think Paul would sort of say, well, you know, in, in a sense, the whole church is built upon mutual submission, right? right. You know I mean, on the one hand, we're supposed to, we're all supposed to submit to one another. I mean, that's basically the posture of Christ. Right. All right. It's the idea of, you know, being willing to sacrifice for one another. For Paul, this is what leads to unity. This is loving one another. So, yeah, it completely makes sense to me that Paul is going to start out with this, like, you know, remember, <laughs> yeah. you know, this is in the context of you are all brothers and sisters in Christ. I guess my one hesitation, I think, is that, you know, when you, when you read on in the household code with, with parents and slaves and, and again, we're, you know, I, it, yeah, it's, it's even if <laughs> it's kind of like offensive to even kind of talk about mm -hmm. it like this, but I mean, you don't have, you do have children obeying the parents, not obe parents obeying the children. You have slaves 
obeying their masters, not masters obeying their slaves. Now, even those yeah. are very redefined. Like you, you don't mm-hmm. have the same um, yeah. coercive authority or abuse or even hierarchy that you have in the ancient world. And yet there is still a certain directional, you know, children obey your parents and that. So I, I when, when it does say like nowhere in scripture does it say explicitly husbands submit to your wives. Of course, there's a there's a general sense in which all believers are to submit to one another. But again, there there can be specific relationships where yeah. ch- children are to submit to their parents, not vice versa. Um, that I guess. So, so here's I, I hesitate saying, no, Ephesians five is all about mutual submission. But I'm it, clearly he is redefining what headship mm-hmm. means, as, as you already yeah. said, so that it's almost like I, I'm almost OK with saying like functional submission and like the way the husband is to love and lay down his life for his wife is so so absurd in that content in in that world that somebody that the head would do something like that yeah that i'm fine maintaining the language of husbands love your wives and here's what that looks like wives submit to your husband so love and submission these are kind of somewhat different concepts but they're so overlapping in function that it does kind of sound like mutual submission without using that actual language yes. is that am i on i mean yeah. i'm just kind of thinking out loud here because i just when they just say well 521 kind of controls the whole thing i'm like well not does it though i mean i don't know um it, it certainly doesn't carry over into, into, the, into yeah. the again the children and parents mm-hmm. and slaves and slaves and masters well when i think i say i, I think we're talking about 521 as being sort of like the overall context yeah um you know, for, for Paul, there are layers, okay? And uh, what these layers are going to look like, okay, are, are then, you know, sort of like more detailed examinations of text. You mm-hmm. know, that's why Paul can say uh, in Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek. Mm-hmm. And then in Romans 9 to 11, there is very clearly Jew and Greek, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so some of it depends on, you know, that's what I started thinking. It's like, what is what is sort of like this overall theme? Mm. Can Paul have these things within it? Um, because there was clearly in 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 uh, uh, in Ephesians five an asymmetry, okay. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. When when Paul is talking, it is the love of the husband, okay, that is the one that becomes a fulfillment of Genesis in terms of the one flesh union. And what I kind of bring out in the um, in the in my book, the other part of of Genesis is this idea for the unity of the husband and wife is pretty much put on Adam, you know, for that in, in terms of unity, the, the one flesh. And so Ephesians 5, in a sense, becomes kind of a fulfillment of Genesis in terms of the one flesh union. And here, I, I think it's kind of mirrored in that it is the husband, you know, you know, being like Christ for this to, you know, come about. And so that's why I say maybe in terms of, as we're looking at in terms of an asymmetry here, what is the nature that, you yeah. know, you know, asymmetry. Yeah, yeah. And I would kind of say like, that's kind of where I think as I've talked to complementarians, egalitarians in terms of how they kind of see the implications of the passage, that's something where that is, you know, continuing to be kind of, I guess, hashed out yeah, in no, that. That's good. That's good. Let, let's go back to, um, so one of your, I think it's your second chapter. Uh, oh, the stuff on evangelical women and social reform is really, really good. Uh, I think it's a chapter after that where you, Oh yeah. E- okay. Chapter three, egalitarianism and equal rights. Um, and you kind of, you know, address and critique this whole secular quest for equal rights saying this doesn't really resonate with kind of like the, um, what, what New Testament writers are, are passionate about this kind of modern concern for equal rights. And you said that that's at least some kind of modern, even Christian e- egalitarian approaches seem to reflect this kind of secular paradigm. Can you unpack that for us a little bit? I, I thought that was really, really helpful. Yeah. First of all, sort of stay like, you know, as I said in the book, you know, I think that the debate tends to turn on on authority and equality. Um, and, you know, definitely, I think you see those themes in scripture. The question is, is this sort of a primary theme for the gender debate? And kind of what I'm kind of arguing in terms of, you know, I critique authority in the complementarian position, then I, I critique equality in the egalitarian position. And um, what I tried to do in that chapter was as I'm trying to kind of show how a particular concern gets shaped, mm-hmm. you know, in the debate. And it seems like for egalitarians, the concern tends to be, you know, equal rights. And what's so interesting to, um, uh, in that section was, I had looked at an earlier period, at the turn of the century, the beginning of the, the 20th century, 
when you had what people call call the first, you know, for the first feminist movement, which was a lot of it was right. influenced by, you know, evangelicals in that regard. But what's interesting in that movement, because that period was different, because there was a more corporate concern, you know, in that regard, when people were fighting for women's rights, they didn't use an argument for equality, you know, in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, they're basically the same because during that period, it's more Victorian. And the idea was that women are more virtuous. And so therefore, women, for example, uh, need to take the lead in social reform, benevolence, or, you know, or the right to vote because their moral influence is needed. Okay, you know, in that regard. And the idea of the argument, say, for the right to vote based on women's rights was seen actually more as a selfish concern, you know, in that regard, um, because it, you know, it's just about it would just be about the woman uh, and they're wanting to vote as opposed to. Uh, the argument that went out was women should vote because they're so virtuous that we need their vote in order to make <laughs> society better. Okay, and so to me that was really interesting that you know people didn't really like this argument from right. Okay, now you kind of fast forward to more the sixties and the seventies where you had the impact of the civil rights movement, and now the argument for right is more accepted. You know, in this regard, and now the argument for you know let's say for women's roles in ministry. Now it's now you can bring in the argument that it's about right because the culture is more accepting of that, okay. you know, in that regard. Yeah. So the reason, yeah, and the reason I want to bring in is not necessarily argue whether it was good or bad, but just to kind of show that the debate seems to be shaped mm-hmm. by a cultural concern. And that I, I do see that in in, and again, I'm, I'm fairly new to the kind of contemporary debate. You know, I've, I've read a decent amount of books now, but like I, I do see that language pretty frequently, you know, um, and it does, it's, it's hard because of course we want equal rights, right? I mean, it, we're all created in right. God's image and there's something really attractive mm-hmm. about that. And yet, mm-hmm. I don't know, there's just, sometimes I just feel like, are, are we reflecting secular concerns? And I, I don't know where to draw that line, you know, cause the Bible is, cons- we're all created in God's image. And yet it is a very modern, this whole idea of equal rights is such a modern concept there was a, gr- a great mm-hmm. article, um, by a guy, he's not even a conservative, like biblical scholar. Um, I forgot his name. You you might know it because everybody who enters this debate cites it. It's it's called uh, Jesus was not an egalitarian, <laughs> even though oh, I think so. uh-huh. the author uh-huh. is egalitarian. But he's like, yeah. we're just imposing modern uh-huh. Western categories on these ancient yeah. authors. Mm-hmm. I, do you remember his name? I forgot his name. If you're talking about an article, was it John Elliott's article? Yes, yes, John Elliott. Yeah, okay, he's, yes. he's written. Uh-huh, he wrote two yeah. of them uh, mm-hmm. that were along those lines. Mm-hmm. Even I mean, Scott Scott McKnight is you know he's an egalitarian, but I've I've heard him kind of say he gets a little nervous importing our kind of modern uh, framework on these ancient authors. Um, yeah, this is it's gonna, this is going to slide easily into I, I think probably my favorite chapter in the book on I think it's chapter four, the Kingdom Themes chapter, where you talk about. Yeah, yeah. The whole idea of leadership. So here, I, I want to um, let me uh, think out loud before you, because this is this. As I came into this book, here is what I was thinking, and then you put so much language to it. I was kind of feeling. It seems like at least by at least some people come at this very question with kind of a secular view of leadership. That you have somebody with the power at the top. Yeah. And he or she is the most important person or more important. And if you're not a leader, then you're just a non-leader. You're simply a, you know, a, a, a deacon, a servant. You, you, you know, you're relegated to just serving mm-hmm. people, but you can't actually ascend to the top of the pyramid and lead people and have this kind of power. People don't put it necessarily in those terms, but they come really close sometimes. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. Like, the we could almost frame the question of you know can women serve in christian leadership as are women allowed to wash the feet of men <laughs> to put it in very yeah. almost offensive terms but you know where i'm going with that like like okay. to be a leader is to be the servant of all to be the i mean jesus literally washed people's feet and says this is what it means to be lord and teacher so and ephesians or philippians 2 just does a magisterial job, uh, counterintuitive job of just turning this whole paradigm on its head so that no longer are our leaders in the Christian, in the Christian church, you know, the person with 
power and, and, and coercion and are more important, e- even if, and I'm not even talking about like abuses in today's church. Cause people would say, well, no, that happens all the time today. I'm like, I'm not even, yeah, of course. Yeah. We're all screwed up today. I'm talking about the framework of the new, how the new Testament even conceives of, le- of leadership. So anyway, that it, from my vantage point, I think sometimes the very question from the very beginning assumes a secular view of leadership. So am I onto something? I mean, are you, um, so you did something similar in your book. It's kind of reframing the very question. Yeah, I think you're kind of talking about like, I think a lot of us kind of have this intuitive sense like, oh, wait, we're talking about leadership and what, you know what I mean? There's something that's kind of bothering us. And I think maybe because we associate so much of leadership with power, you know what I mean, with power. And that's kind of our model in, in this regard. And I think we also tend to have this view of leaders. Yeah, they are the ones that are up there and they're different than us and they're better than us. And you know, they have more say over our lives, you know, in this regard, the kind of like the sort of better, you know, quality of person in that regard, which in one sense is kind of a natural way of looking at it, right? If someone's talented, they become a leader. Mm-hmm. But maybe it's kind of part of the aspect too, because the gospel is supernatural, right? <laughs> you know, it's it, it kind of does the opposite. So if it's, I think we would have a natural tendency to kind of, you know, elevate leaders, to think about leaders, you know, in this way. But then again, you're looking at what the gospel says about, you know, leadership and you look particularly about, of course, at Jesus's example, you know, in, in this regard. And that's when we begin to see the, oh, the gospel idea of leadership is different, you know, in, in, in this regard. Um, and in particular, in the book, one of the things I talk about that, you know, so I think there's been kind of attempts to kind of modify this in terms of, you know, talking about servant leadership. But I think from my vantage point, often, not all the time, because I've, I've been under some wonderful, you know, mm-hmm. servant leaders, but it often seems to be that servant leadership is defined as leadership is the big thing, kind of like you talk about, right? Yeah. And then servant is kind of this qualifier. Right. Okay. It means kind of be gentle the way you do it or be nice or, or just, you know, make sure you're keeping the, you know, I, you know, I'm keeping your best interest in mind things like that. But if we're looking at, you know, how Jesus talked about leadership again in, you know, in the gospels, he says, if you're going to be first, you have to be last. Okay. You have to be the servant. You have to be the slave. And when you're looking at that, well, what are the implications of being a servant and slave? You know, antiquity, it means no status, no privileges, you know, in a sense, no, you you lose basically everything that made your identity, Hmm. you know, in this regard, it's, it, it is seen, it's supposed to be seen as a complete sacrifice of your identity, you know, presumably so you find your identity in Christ mm-hmm. and then you can be mm-hmm. that leader. Yeah. Um, it's not a modifier, right. you know, it is actually, again, a paradox in that regard. It was either you or maybe Andrew Clark who said what you're saying now that the whole idea of even the modern concept of servant leadership doesn't go too far. It's kind of like, yeah, leaders should also have a servant-oriented heart kind of thing, rather than the servants <laughs> should be the leaders. You mm-hmm. know, put, putting the emphasis on the servant servitude aspect of it. Yeah. What do you do with? Because um, I, I can hear people pushing back and saying, "Yeah, but still, yes, okay, leaders should be servant. They they shouldn't have this high status. They shouldn't think of themselves as more important than others." But they're still making spiritual decisions. Uh, Hebrew says, "Submit to your spiritual your your leaders, the ones mm-hmm. those who are leading you." Um, yeah. the, the leaders are the ones teaching and controlling the, in a sense, the doctrine of the church. And again, I, I may even be playing on modern kind of church structures and maybe that, maybe that's the problem, but is there still a sense in which these servant leaders, servant leaders still have some level of power? Um, and I'm going to leave that term undefined because I want to hear you <laughs> hear what you have to say. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll make a few points here, you know, in that regard. Um, First of all, I think one critical point is in First Corinthians, the first four chapters, Paul is talking about a battle over leaders. And this is yeah. kind of the point kind of we see there. You know, the Corinthians are fighting over leaders. I follow Paul. I follow Paulus. I follow Cephas. And what Paul does in the next few chapters is he wants to reorient their perspective. He says, what is Paul? What is Apollos? We're only the servants. You know, I planted Apollos waters. God gave the growth. So first of all, he says part of the expect that it's like we need to sort of sort of take our perspective from, you know, focusing upon the leaders to realizing that they are just servants through whom God works. OK, you know, in that regard. And I would also say maybe this is more from the sort of spiritual formation perspective. 
as I look and I see what I think some of these passages might have, you know, how they might have been read in antiquity, for someone to become a slave really meant to, you know, as I said, to give up all these things that gave them their sense of identity and worth. In order to do that, you really have to be completely submitted to God. You know, I mean, you have to, you know, I mean, your ego, your pride has to be submitted if you're really going to give up um, all of those status markers. So I would say, from a spiritual formation perspective, if someone is able to do that, that person could then be entrusted with, hmm. you know, you know, is, is more likely to be entrusted with power rather than someone who says, I have this power, okay. but don't worry, I'll be, you know, I'll be gentle with it. You know what I mean? <laughs> In that regard. Yeah. So that becomes, so I think there's that. I, I don't think we give enough attention to, you know, what that means for a person to be submitted to God in that. And then the other point I want to make is in terms of Ephesians 4, where Paul talks about the body of Christ. And he says, and this has kind of really impacted my understanding because you talk about, you know, the church structure. And he says, you know, God has given apostles, prophets, evangelists, um, shepherds, and teachers. Okay. And then he says, for what? You know, I mean, for, you know, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And when I look at that, and, and honestly, when I look at the rest of the New Testament, too, the, I guess, leaders, however you're going to define them, you know, elders or mm -hmm. pastors, they're the ones a lot who are kind of equipping the others for doing that. It's not necessarily that they're in front, always doing everything and, you know what I mean, mm -hmm. um, having all the attention. Their job seems to be to equip other people to do the work of ministry. Yeah. And I think that kind of impacts how we look at um, leadership as well. This episode is sponsored by Abide. Abide is the world's most popular Christian meditation app, guiding hundreds of thousands of people around the world into biblical truth and personal reflection. The mission of Abide is rooted in the wisdom of Psalm 1, which says, Blessed is the one who meditates on God's law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. The creators of Abide believe that the health benefits associated with Christian meditation are outcomes of practicing a biblical lifestyle. So health benefits reported by Abide users include less stress, lower depression, and better sleep. And as many of you are learning, I'm sure, you know, quality sleep is so important for our mental, physical, and spiritual health. So download the Abide app today and find peace amidst the chaos. If you subscribe now, you can receive 25% off your first year when you sign up for the premium subscription by texting the promo code theology to 22433. Okay, so that's if, if you text 22433 and type in theology, you will get 25% off your first year in the premium subscription. Sleep better, pray more, and meditate on God's life-changing word with life. When you reflect on the New Testament vision for leadership, do you find that vision lacking in a lot of churches today in your honest evaluation? <laughs> <laughs> or or how, what, what would it look yeah. like? If you can just kind of describe a contemporary church like that's reflecting accurately a New Testament vision for leadership, like what would that look like? And in, in your opinion, yeah. Well, I can say first of all, um, as I said, I feel very fortunate in the places where I worked and the churches I've been that I think that they do have a very you know healthy view of leadership. You okay. know, in that regard, um, I will say you know in terms of when I look more broadly and I hear stories, <laughs> you know what I mean from my students you know, other people, it does seem that there is this kind of uh, sense of, yes, the leaders are the ones, it's great to be a leader because you're in this position and you get to kind of, you know, have this power, say, you know, what, what's happening. And I hear stories about people saying like, I had a concern, I brought it up. I wasn't, you know, it really wasn't taken seriously, you know, in that. So I do think that um, sometimes I do think that there is a little bit too much of a top-down model, mm -hmm. you know, in this regard, where we put a lot of emphasis upon our leaders are the ones who are, in a sense, you know, doing most of it, you know, in, in this regard. I think our leaders have a responsibility, but I think it can result in uh, congregations that become a little bit passive and kind of expect, well, our leaders, they're the ones who went to seminary, they're the ones who know this, 
you know, we'll just kind of sit under them, you know, every week and kind of listen, Mm -hmm. you know, to them. But I actually think that, no, actually it is the congregation that it's supposed to be doing more. And in some sense, the leader's kind of stepping back Mm -hmm. from that. And also, if you were to look at, um, in a sense, churches, like the impression that I get when I read 1 Corinthians um, 12 to 14 is you do seem to have a church where, you know, Paul says, in a sense, everyone participates. You know, everyone has a song, a teaching, you know, you know, in this. And I think I would like to see our churches be a little bit more, you know, like that, you know, in this regard, because to me, that seems to be a big aspect of, you know, the role of the spirit, the role of the spirit distributes. um, And we are, in a sense, empowered by the spirit, not just to go out into the world and the missional aspect to evangelize, but we are empowered to build up the body of Christ. Right, right. And I, you know, I think I'd like to see, I, I think scripture reflects a little bit more of that, mm-hmm. you know, rather than, you know, kind of Sunday morning, um, it's, it's, it's a few people up on stage. Do you think that there's different kind of like uh, ecclesiologies in the New Testament? Because I mean, I, scholars often say, you know, you have the, the Corinthian letters reflects this very kind of democratic kind of messy, everybody's mm-hmm. jumping in. Um, mm-hmm. And then you, by the time you get to the pastorals, you know, Paul's like, man, Jesus hasn't come back yet. We got to start short. We got to start reining in these wild charismatics, you know, yeah. get some some leaders in place. Yeah. I mean, do you, whether it's a straight line development or just some diversity, I mean, do you think that there is diversity that Paul was fine with the Corinthians being more democratic and fine with the church of Ephesus and Crete being more, maybe more, a little more structured or is that, am I reading too much into that? You know, I, I think that that is a difficult question, you know, in that regard, but I do think, I mean, I would say, you know, uh, to your question, I think Paul does seem to be fine with the Corinthians, you know, being a little bit more like loose, you know, in in that regard, he's kind of giving them principles, you know, whether he's that way, because there are young congregation, you know, I think, you know, you kind of see there's so many problems in Corinth, you know, is it possible that Paul is just saying there, you know, there's so many things here, I can't deal with everything at once. I'm just going to, (laughs) you know, give you folks this um, versus it, but I certainly don't see a tension you know, within, if you're going to say something about, oh, we see a little bit more structure in the pastorals and you see in, you know, Corinthians, I certainly don't see a tension, you know, you know, within that, you know, could be something where things develop. He says, okay, yeah, we are waiting a little longer. Let's have some, you know, more structured leadership, you know, in that regard versus the Corinthians. I think certainly that is, you know, that is possible, but kind of over, I kind of like throughout Paul, I think Paul does seem to say that there is still is a need for kind of mature leadership to have oversight you know, in this mm-hmm. regard, because of, you know, the nature of the church, because the church is so special. Now, whether, you know, I said the Corinthian church is so young, he says, well, I'm kind of your oversight right now, you know, in, in this regard. But for Paul, the church is so important that, you know, it is so important that the church remain, you know, holy, mm-hmm. that the church remain faithful to the gospel, that there is, there does have to be at least some kind of, of oversight. I wonder, too, I've never thought about this, but like you, you mentioned earlier that like First Corinthians 1 to 4, Paul's really concerned about this kind of warped view of leadership and there's factions surrounding certain personalities and, and maybe not in that day and age, it was probably people that were like, had, you know, wealth and power. And it seems like he's almost critiquing like a parent, like a patron client kind of <laughs> division that a church where you have these patrons yeah. at the top and people are like, Oh, well, I'm of this yeah. person. I'm of that person. I think, again, I think Andrew Clark um, did some work or, or talked about that, but then like we, Later on, the letter is. I wonder if that's why Paul has more of a democratic vision of the church. I just thought about this, but like in First Corinthians five, he when he's telling them they should have disciplined this person out of the church that the guy sleeping with mm. his what is this his um stepmother or whatever. He tells the whole church like the whole church has power to you. Yeah. You all should have removed this person. He mm-hmm. doesn't say you know you leaders yeah. should have had a meeting and then taken care of this guy and exercised church discipline he really invests the whole congregation with power and 12 to 14 you know everyone comes to the teaching a psalm a prayer a, a, a prophecy you know um he see again he seems to invest the whole congregation with power is is there a reason why again i don't even know what my question is you've got you clearly have leaders at the beginning but he's kind of critiquing mm-hmm. that like and is that why he like the solution to the chaos in Corinth isn't you need to have leaders in place. It's like, no, you're maybe that was part of the problem at the beginning. I don't know. That's a really interesting observation. I hadn't thought about it that much, but maybe there is something to that. 
Um, because one of the things is that, you know, in first Corinthians, there is this theme of unity throughout, right. you know, in this. And so like Margaret Mitchell argued to me an argument that, you know, when Paul talks about that, he doesn't want divisions. That's, you know, the theme for the whole letter. And I think she makes a good case for that. Um, whether it's not his, his purpose, I certainly think it's reflected throughout. So I think it's certainly possible because there is so much about the body of Christ and unity and loving one another that runs throughout first Corinthians. So, yeah, I think it's certainly possible that one of the things Paul is teaching them is how to live together. <laughs> you know what I mean? Now that you're Christians, now that you're in Christ, you're used to fighting for status. You're, wor- you're used to, you know, having paid, wanting to be a patron and, and having the status. But what I'm showing you is what it means to actually now be, you know, all of you who are in, all of you are in Christ, mm-hmm. you know, in this and what that means to uh, love one another. So right. yeah, I certainly think that that's possible. Right, right, right. I just wonder if that going back to the leadership thing, if that and maybe that I, I was part of a congregation in in Scotland. It was a kind of a post brethren congregation to where we had they had one traditional brethren service and then a more contemporary service. But in the traditional service, there was no leader, there was no organization, no plan. We all show up, and uh, there's one guy that can play the piano, and everybody else kind of sits there, and so, so somebody would stand up and read us passage of scripture. Another person would say, Hey, let's sing Psalm 98 or sing hymn number 98. And then the guy goes up to the piano and plays the hymn and we all sing. And then, then it's silent for a little bit. People are just kind of praying and and reading scripture to themselves. And somebody else would just get up and pray. Somebody else would give a kind of a word of exhortation. And uh, if you had told me before, whether something like that was possible in church, I would say that would, that would never work. And maybe it wouldn't work in America, (laughs) but it was, first of all, it was my favorite service. Mm -hmm. It was the most genuine service Mm -hmm. services I've ever been to. There was never, well, rarely were there kind of weird moments where you're like, ah, got to get the mic away from that person. (laughs) 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 And you know, it, it, it was part of the, it was part of the culture of the church. Um, if we just try to create that out of thin air or something that might, I don't know, um, might be different. It's also small. It was 50 people, you know, maybe 75. I wonder too, if like, is it the sizes of our churches that makes it to where we feel like we have to have one or two or three leaders on stage and the rest kind of look forward and don't participate? Because what would it look like for a first Corinthians 12 to 14 type of service with a thousand people, you know, I don't know. Right. Well, some of it I think is, yeah, I think as humans, there's this natural move towards institutionalization, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, as, as things get bigger, you have to have more organization and structure. I kind of see it everywhere. I kind of see it, you know, at my school as, you know, as it gets bigger, you know, there is kind of, it just sort of seems, seems that there is a need for, you know, um, to create more structure in, in this regard. And so maybe it is, as we're talking about the first century churches and if they're house churches, Maybe it is a bit easier, yeah. you know, when you have, you know what I mean? Or it's more feasible when you have, you know, you know, 30 people or something, which I guess the thing is scripture doesn't really talk about that. Right. Because, you know what I mean? Scripture doesn't say like, you know, and then like, you know, two said two millennia later when you're going to have these mega churches, yeah. you know, here's how you can do it. But, and so I guess, I think that's a really good question because maybe sort of the underlying idea is how do we, you know, even if we have these huge churches, how do we bring in more of this idea of everyone being able to participate in the spiritual gifts? Because the idea of the spirit is not just, again, it's not just, I have this, you know, empowerment, I'm going to go out and evangelize. You know I mean? Paul says, seems to indicate that these are to edify the congregation when, you know, when we're gathered together in worship in this regard. And I don't know if somehow we kind of shy away from that. Yeah. Um, and I've been to Quaker churches, which sounds similar, okay. you know, the experience is similar to what you, you talk about. And I think because we tend to think about, you know, sometimes spiritual movement in terms of like, do we still believe in the spectacular charismatic gifts? Or are we, you know, what I mean, are we cessationists? But are there other ways in which, you know, what I mean, sort of beyond that, are there other ways in which the spirit can move in the, you yeah. know, in the service? Because Paul does envision that as a sort of, mm-hmm. you know, sort of spirit empowered, you know, yeah. service. Although actually, I, I, let me add this point too. Yeah. He does impose order too, right? In 1 Corinthians 14. He'll say when the right. prophets are speaking, which is very interesting because he says the prophets want to speak, but only let two or three of them speak. So they're like, what if you're the sports prophet? And you're like, hey, I've got a prophecy. <laughs> and he's like, yeah. Paul says, no, only two or three of you can speak. But, but God gave me this prophecy. I'm like, I'm not sure, <laughs> you know, what happens in that situation. Right. But it does seem to be, yeah, yeah, how do you, you know, spirit-led and yet with yeah. um, order. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, with a bigger 
gathering i i am personally drawn to and i don't i i don't think there's one a one size fits all ecclesiology i just i you know i, I don't want to be too dogmatic i personally am drawn to models that are 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 pretty intentional about keeping the numbers of the gathering small maybe it's part of a big church or whatever but like um the uh, the guys over at uh, Tampa Underground they they've got this network of like a hundred you know kind of I don't know they call missional communities or something um, and so w- when now they do have a Sunday gathering where I think everybody does come together but the primary kind of location and rhythm and identity of the Christian is in this missional community it, it, it's more than just a big church with small groups it's almost like the whole system's inverted where it's a bunch yeah. of small gatherings oh and they also happen to meet you know for big optional gatherings every now and then or whatever um and, and then we are church francis chan's thing out there in san francisco does something similar and, and there's they're kind of popping up everywhere because I, th- I think there is this like i think there is this hunger of, you know you read the new testament and you and we all now know like yeah these are mm-hmm. smaller gatherings but there's something kind of mm-hmm. sweet and and maybe even necessary about the size of the gathering that allows us to kind of embody the church rhythms that we see in the new Testament. I don't know. It's hard. Those, yeah. Or even communion in a large gathering. It's like, are we doing what the new Testament was doing? <laughs> right. 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 Where everyone gets like the little cup or something, yeah. and, you know, you have your own individual cup and <laughs> yeah, it's hard to know how to sort of balance the practicality of it. Yeah. You know, versus, you know, it's like, you know, how do can we keep churches, you know, 30 to 40, you know, in, in this day and age? A cornerstone church, again, where Francis Chan was at, uh, I was on leadership there when, when he, well, when he was there and when he left. And they started this thing on, I don't know if they still do, but on I think it was on Wednesday, Wednesday nights, they would have a communion service where it was a huge potluck in the sanctuary. Everybody was invited. It was chaos. It was messy. It was stressful. But it was, I don't know, at least they tried to say, let's okay, we're a big church, but let's, let's try as best we can to reflect yeah. what, you know, the, the Lord's supper would have looked like. So yeah, big meal. And then the, yeah. then the, the, one of the pastors would get up and kind of lead us in a communion as, as part of the meal, you know? So I don't, it was, it was a good attempt, I think, but yeah. So I, I have to ask, and you can plead the fifth, but so do you like, <laughs> do you not ultimately Uh-oh. publicly, I'll just say publicly land on a certain view? Like if, would you, would you ever serve as an ordained pastor elder to church or do you feel like that is uh, not scripturally allowed or do you not want to answer the question? I just, I have to ask. (laughs) Well, let me just say, I, I, I think my, my ministry is more um, being able to, you know, to hopefully to speak to this topic in this way. And so I like to, uh, to, to stick with, with what I I think I I do best. And (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And that, that allows you to be able to speak, I think, uh, with a voice that you maybe wouldn't have if people knew, well, she does ultimately land here there. So I, I get that. How about, okay, so as kind of follow up, what do you think is the best exegetical argument for a, com- a whatever term we want to use, complementarian view? And what's the best ex- exegetical argument for an egalitarian view in, in your in your opinion? Well, I would say that uh, maybe sort of the, the strongest uh, point uh, that uh, let's say like each side has, and I know each side will have a rebuttal for this too. But the gender distinctions um, in Genesis to me are so clear. Yeah. You know, in that it is so. You know, what I mean, if you were to compare the Genesis account with other ancient accounts, you know, what I mean, uh, Adam is created first, and then Eve. And, you know, and Eve is created, you know, from Adam. And you know, and then if you look at other ancient accounts, you know, men and women are created at the same time. Okay, so you know, what I mean, or if you were to look at, you know, the Gospel of Thomas says, you know, I mean, for a woman to be saved, she has to become male, you know, in this. So these sort of like extra, you know, non-biblical accounts um, don't always hold to the importance of these gender distinctions. But Genesis, I think, is very clear in the way it presents it. And then by the time you get to Revelation, of course, you have, you know, it's kind of played on this with the Bride of Christ. And so I know that egalitarians will say that uh, we also believe in gender distinctions, but I haven't yet really heard something satisfactory in terms of what those are, yeah. <laughs> right? And I think you may agree, disagree, you know, one may disagree with what the confidence they are, the gender distinctions, but at least I, I see them coming up with something, you know what I mean? And, and you know what I mean? This is a, a really core idea for the complementarian position, 
you know, whether or not you agree with it. And so to me, I think to see this as foundational is something that is kind of their strength. Um, what I would say for uh, the egalitarian position is I think they bring in acts too, um, better than the complementarians do. Um, the whole idea that in this new creation and the spirit comes and, you know, I mean, the spirit empowers everyone for this missional sense. Now, the open question for that is, are those distinct from, you know, offices? Okay. Like pastor elder also were things like prophecy. Is that considered, you know, the highest authoritative gift? There's a lot of, you know, you know, question about that. But I would say that again, the strength of the egalitarians is they, they, I think they bring in acts to more and, and better than the, um, than the complementarians do. Okay. So I'm, I'm not safe. I'm not sure if I would say it's a final argument for either one of them, Yeah. but I would say that is their, you know, a particular strength. Do you, um, in your, again, in your opinion, do you, and maybe you can't, well, yeah, if, if you, if you don't want to say, do, do you know who has a stronger interpretation of first Timothy two, or do you just, do you feel like it's just really complicated or? Well, I will say that, yeah, first Timothy two is one that, um, I'm, I'm still uh, wrestling with in, okay. in that regard. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of information that's coming out in terms of the cultural background of it. To me, a big question is, yeah, how do you use that cultural background? Um, and then also, what's Paul's use of, you know, the creation imagery, you know, in that? Yeah. Um, and so to me, I, I said that that's one passage I'm still really wrestling with. You know, in that regard, how do you fit it? How do you fit it with everything that, that Paul is saying? And I would say, yeah, that's a really complicated passage. And I think that's probably one I would really like to see um, people wrestle with more uh, beyond the kind of traditional yeah. arguments. Um, because I think that that is a key passage. I think that's kind of sort of like often a make or break passage, you know, for a lot of people. Um, and I think it may be uh, deserving of some, you know, some some fresh look. Do, do you know who's doing good background? Because I know there's been previous books and stuff that have, you know, talked about the Artemis cult and stuff. But I know uh, Sandra... Glenn, Sandra Glenn. Glenn. Yeah. She's, um, it does. Uh, she's been doing a lot of good work. So that's one person that I, I would look to okay. in that regard. Okay. Um, yeah. I know that uh, it's been a while since I looked at it too. I know that um, there's been a lot of work done in terms of just the linguistics of it. You yeah. know, Andreas Kassenberger and yeah. um, some of the folks I think at Trinity came up with a very detailed book in that. Yeah. So I think if you kind of, it'd be interesting to just kind of look at the linguistic yeah. material and then the background uh, material and then kind of right. see what, yeah. Mm -hmm. I've been, I'm knee deep in all that research right now on first Timothy two. Still have, I haven't landed at all on that passage. I guess the frustrating thing for me, and it's, I guess it's shouldn't be a surprise, but, um, most exegetes I read already ha already kind of passionately hold to a certain view. And you know, they, you, maybe they would say, well, yeah, I arrived at my egalitarian position after studying for Timothy two. And, and maybe that's true, but it just, I feel like there, there are, I've just seen, I don't know. It just seems like there, there is a lot of bias that goes into which exegetical arguments people highlight and, uh, and don't, and which arguments they don't really deal with. Mm -hmm. And like if, if first Timothy two was in the Quran and we were looking at, you know, a Muslim text and we read first Timothy two, we would just be like, yeah, see, I mean, they, women are allowed to do these things, you know, like, it, it, I don't know if it would be, if we would be scrambling to, you know, um, say, well, what does this really mean? Cause it can't mean what it says it means. But then at the same time, so, so that's kind of like the complementarian, <laughs> but at the same time, there are, there are, there is some just strange stuff like, okay, so Adam was created first. What does it have to do with teaching though? Like that? I mean, I don't know. Like that that's kind of a bold assumption that because he's created first therefore he's a qualified teacher. Like you could say he's preeminent or whatever. Right? Maybe maybe even authority, but the the teaching part, like that that seems weird and um and there is some stuff in the background of of Ephesus that is yeah, a, a Bruce Winter I think. I to my opinion has probably the most provocative stuff on that on that chapter with the whole new women thing, you know, and, mm -hmm. and I, I think if, if he's right, that that was happening in Paul's day, I could easily see some of the language Paul uses there to be kind of maybe addressing that particular movement, you know, anyway. Yeah. It's, it's, it's tough. And often I know everybody's kind of sick of researching often but that, that really is a weird word when you look at the, how it's used elsewhere and it's not, we don't have a lot to go on. So it's kind of like, man, this is, you know, but anyway, I think you're right in terms of it's it's a difficult passage. There's so much out there. It's kind of hard to know, you know, 
you know, what it is. I'll just kind of like be able to let you know that um, this is not going to help solve your question about First Timothy. But one of the things I've been um, kind of considering in terms of as I've kind of like after the book is done, what are, you know, how, what are some other things I can think about in this is I did write an article called for the man and woman um, in the new dictionary of uh, Paul and his letters that's going to be coming out. Oh, yeah. And the idea that I'm trying to develop there is that what if we're looking at gender in terms of the, the intersection of creation and new creation imagery? Um, because, and, and I kind of like go into that in the article, because what you kind of have here is creation, the creation imagery is man and woman, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Sort of like male and female. And then you kind of, you know, get this in Genesis and you kind of see this in Ephesians. The new creation imagery is neither male nor female. And so maybe kind of like what we're, as we're trying to kind of figure this out and you say, we kind of have like, we all kind of come to the text with our own biases, right? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I have this view and then I'm going to, it's kind of easy for me to interpret first Timothy according to you know, my view, because I don't think with the information we have right now, there's like a clear, correct answer. You know, I mean, people make arguments, some are better, you know, than others. Um, so that's why I just kind of like, that's kind of the thing I've been kind of, mm. you know, kind of playing with right now, you okay. know, in terms of this, in this new age, how does Paul take this the idea of creation of male and female? And how is this played out in new creation where you kind of have both? Huh. Male and female, and neither male nor female. So, and as I said, it doesn't really help you in maybe not necessarily help you answer Timothy, but I kind of use that in terms of some of the passages and say, what would it look like if we're thinking about, you know, a passage like First Timothy? Well, I mean, okay, so First Timothy two twelve, I do not permit a man to teach or exercise authority over women. But verses 13, 14, and 15 just get weirder and weirder and weirder, (laughs) all the way to like being saved through childbearing, which. Right. I, you know, I've looked at all the different interpretations of that, and and they're all like, "Why does Paul say like what?" <laughs> he okay, so that so two fifteen is the last verse in the chapter. I, to my mind, and this would help more the egalitarian argument. Clearly, he's drawing on some kind of viewpoint. He's he's combating something going on specifically in Ephesus or a viewpoint in mm-hmm. that culture. It seems to be yeah. why this just comes out of nowhere. Like it has nothing to do with anything unless he's correcting some kind of aberrant interpretation of Genesis 2, which here, and I'll I'll let you go in a second, but I got to ask you this. So you do have, I think, you would know more about this than I would, in later Gnostic texts, a lot of stuff about Eve and Eve being created maybe first or whatever. Like he, I could see where people say that 1 Timothy is like a second century rebuttal against Gnosticism because he sees it. He seems to be kind of combating that, but we now know that Gnosticism wasn't around the first century. But could there have been some kind of proto-Gnostic views of Eve and the creation account that was at least in the air that wasn't written down yet that Paul's addressing in Ephesus? Is that some something people have talked about or um I think that that definitely can be brought into it. Yeah, the whole idea. And I, I think we certainly can expect that like if these views are formed later. You know what I mean? They, they could, how early would they have their start? You know, I mean, that becomes kind of a big question because sometimes as we're dating, you know, some of these texts like Gospel of Thomas, how early is it? Is it, you yeah. know, is it sort of like contemporary with the Gospels? Is it you know, a couple of centuries later? So that is a big question. But certainly we can't rule out the idea that some of these okay. things could have been formed, you know, in that. Um, and so, but I wonder in terms of this, as we're looking at First Timothy, maybe one of the big questions would be is as we're looking kind of like throughout the New Testament, um, and this is kind of where I'm at right now as I'm kind of thinking about this. How does Paul use the creation arguments, you know, right, in that? Yeah, to yeah. me, I would look at that. How does he use them in, you know, Timothy? How does he use them in First Corinthians? Um, and maybe, as I said, this is the I don't know question, but this is, might be one where it's like, would this be where we might look? Is there a consistency um, to the way he uses the creation arguments, you know, in that regard? And does that, right. you know, help us? So maybe there's a way in which, because we tend to look at the text in isolation, you know, in this, you know, it's sort of like, I'm really going to an- analyze First Timothy 2. I'm really going to analyze First Corinthians 11, you know, in this regard. Um, but is there a way that we can kind of, you know, kind of go? And, and we, of course, people are trying to be consistent with this, kind of come up with a consistent theology of gender here. But is there another way in which we can kind of use all these texts? Is there um, a larger worldview? And, and I think here's the thing that I, I think about often in interpreting. Um, because as evangelicals, we're very good. We look at the text very carefully, right? I mean, we're, we're good, we're good literalists. Um, but what's the story behind what, you know, what's the story behind, you know, Paul's worldview? You know, he's got a fascinating story 
you know, in Romans, in Romans five about, you know, Adam compared with Jesus you know, in this, is there a story behind this? Again, these are just my interpretive questions um, that I haven't answered yet. But as we're trying to think about, you know, if we feel kind of stuck, yeah. you know, in these passages, is there another way we can look at it to yeah. give us something? Because we've dug so hard in these passages, you know, maybe there's something else that we're missing. That's good stuff. So you're working on that right now? Well, I don't know. Actually, you know what? It kind of came to me by now talking with you. So maybe I need to like talk with you some more so I can get some more ideas. Okay. <laughs> well, Michelle, I've taken you uh, over an hour here. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your outstanding book. Uh, again, it's neither complementarian nor egalitarian. I would highly, anybody that's interested in this debate has to read this book. If you're really strongly committed to one viewpoint or another, you'll love half of the book and maybe get annoyed at the other half but i your arguments are so careful and strong that i think we all should consider it and, and really wrestle with what you have to say so thank you so much for your time uh, michelle many blessings on your life and ministry You're welcome thanks so much for having me This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.